Dear listeners, for the first time, we're going to talk about quantum technology. I think this episode will prove to be a quantum leap in the history of this podcast. Hmm, well... What? <laughs> quantum leaps are actually extremely small. <laughs> yes, okay, party pooper. That's fair enough. But to be fair, quantum, it does sound big. From know-how to wow. The Bosch Global Podcast. Shuko, do you have a favorite refrigerator magnet? A refrigerator magnet? I actually don't have any fridge magnets. I have one, um, like, notepad where I can write all of the missing things for my next groceries. But other than that, I don't have fridge magnets. How about you? Your grocery list is still analog? Of course it is. You're a terrible millennial. <laughs> anyway, my problem with fridge magnets is, you know, some of them fall off. Mm -hmm. You know, you... you try and post the the local takeout menu to it, but, you know, the thing's made out of cardboard or whatever, and they just, they fall off. Or, you know, the, the art you get from kids, something like that. Yeah, yeah, something like that. Well, in any case, what a shame. But I can actually tell you why that is. Well, obviously, it's because the magnet is not strong enough. Exactly. And that's because those magnets only create a magnetic field of about 5 millitesla. Okay, so perhaps I should look for, say, one Tesla magnets. That could definitely work. And they should be easy to find. You could disassemble a loudspeaker, for instance. There'll probably be a magnet in that range of strength in there. So then what if I wanted to put a 10 Tesla magnet on my fridge? I don't recommend it. That is about the strength of the magnetic field of an MRI scanner. You know those medical devices? I do know the MRIs. I've actually been in one. Uh, those tubes that they put you in, you know, just for the listeners, where it's a big, some big cylinder and you go inside and you really, obviously you're not wearing any jewelry, but you also have to take care that you don't have any medical implants. Exactly. So as long as we're going up in order of magnitude each time, just for fun, what's a... 100 Tesla field like? You'd be hard-pressed to find one on Earth. But a white dwarf star has a magnetic field of about 100 Tesla. That's intense. That's like camping. It's intense. Um, <laughs> how does the Earth's magnetic field compare to that? So luckily I did all of my Google searches before being asked by Jeff. <laughs> but we need to dial it way down. We go past the MRI scanner, past the loudspeaker magnet, past the fridge magnet. So it's about 1% of the strength of the fridge magnet, 25 to 65 micro Tesla. And if we go even lower, let's say 1% of that, we're in the nano Tesla range. And so what's a practical example for that? The magnetic field of a toaster. That's measured at a distance of 30 centimeters. You're telling me that my toaster has a magnetic field? Yep, that's the point. It's very, very weak. But in today's episode, we'll explore magnetic fields even weaker than that. We're going to the Pico-Tesla and Femto-Tesla range. Orders of magnitude weaker. <laughs> <laughs> 
Specifically, we'll hear how to measure these tiny field strengths. The answer is quantum sensors. Yay! Welcome to the show. My name is Jeff. And I'm Shuko. The moonshot technology is the quantum computer. This is Ricardo Cipolletti, a physicist who works on quantum technology at Bosch. In his field, there are several far-out ideas, so-called moonshots, like the quantum computer. Second could be quantum information or quantum cryptography. There, the moonshot is a network that is infinitely secure, that you cannot interfere without being um, detected. Personally, I'm highly interested in quantum cryptography coming from the security area, but also something very interesting is quantum networks, which could potentially transmit information at unprecedented speeds, thanks to photon entanglement. Entanglement is such a fascinating and also unintuitive concept. Did you know that even Einstein found it kind of wild? Yeah, I remember that, but I can't remember exactly what he said about that. He called it Spukhafte Fernwirkung, which translates to something like um, spooky action at a distance. Yes, I remember that now. <laughs> and yeah, it definitely is kind of spooky. <laughs> yeah, I get that as well. So the basic idea is that if you have two entangled photons, you can move them away from each other. And then, as soon as you change the state of one of them, the other one changes as well. And then, just by interacting and measuring the other one, you have fast transmission of information. It doesn't sound like Ricardo finds it spooky. <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> For him as a quantum physicist, all of this seems to be very natural. It's just how physics works, right? <laughs> it's not intuitive, <laughs> but it's quantum physics. So. Sure. He's not necessarily so concerned about how it works— He's more interested in how it can be used. Mm. How can quantum technology help us make better technology? His answer lies in the third big group of quantum technologies, quantum sensing. He wants to build quantum sensors. And yeah, they're the moonshot, I think, is the brain-computer interface. Brain-computer interface. So that sounds a little spooky as well, but I guess it just means controlling things with your mind? That is one use case, potentially, yes. A sensor that picks up your brainwaves, if you will, and based on that, sends a signal to a device. To have a signal that you use to control something, like uh, controlling a prothesis or controlling other things in your environment. So things like controlling a prosthetic limb or a prosthetic hand could become much better, easier, and precise with quantum sensing. Well, that's the moonshot, at least. Like quantum computing and quantum information networks, quantum brain-computer interfaces won't be ready to be used so soon. But the underlying technology, that is what Ricardo and his team are developing. And this is the field of quantum technology that is the closest to practical application. And it's very promising. They have formed a startup called Bosch Quantum Sensing and are working on quantum sensors that are much more sensitive than today's state-of-the-art MEMS sensors. You could, for example, outperform that by a factor of, let's say, 1,000. Did he just say 1,000? That's incredible. And it's not just a made-up number. Ricardo and his team have developed working prototypes of magnetic field sensors based on quantum technology that are 1,000 times more sensitive than their MEMS counterparts. Okay, wait, but now we're coming back 
to magnetic fields. Mm -hmm. What kind of fields could you measure? Well, earlier you made the example of a toaster at a distance of 30 centimeters. And that was, what, nanotesla? Correct. Well, I don't know from what distance Ricardo's sensor could detect your toaster, but... Electric chips have a quite large electric current, so we could even detect this signal in the distance of a few meters. Or a car driving by, even at a kilometer distance, uh, you would have a large enough magnetic signature to detect this. If you're out in the countryside, you could perhaps perhaps see a car driving by a kilometer away. But it's really hard to imagine that you can measure its magnetic field from that far away. First wow of the show? Wow. <laughs> wow. A large enough magnetic signature, Ricardo said. And by that, he means femtotesla. Jeff, are you up for a quick physics test? Always. Okay. <clears throat> Do you know your orders of magnitude? So do you know what femto actually means? Actually, no. I think I need to think about that a second. Um, so everyone knows milli, that's a thousandth. Sure, and I'm sure you also know micro, that's a millionth. Yeah. And nano, a billionth. Yeah. So that's 10 to the ninth or one. Yep. Nine zeros, if you count the one before the point. Next would be 12 zeros, and I do believe that is Pico. Yep. One trillionth. So then I guess we just fall down the list, and then Femto must be next with 10 to the 15th. Are you not going to give me any zeros on this one? <laughs> joking, joking. So we're talking about magnetic fields in the quadrillionth of Tesla range. Maybe a bonus question here? What would be the next smaller order of magnitude? I actually don't know that one. Yay! I've never even considered it. <laughs> we got him. We got him. So, <laughs> Atto is the correct answer. But well done for trying nonetheless. Thank you so much. Back to magnetic fields in the Pico and Femto Tesla range. Why could it be useful to measure them? Detecting a car in the distance is interesting, but it's probably more useful to measure smaller magnetic fields from a closer distance. The magnetic fields inside our bodies. But why do our bodies create magnetic fields? Well, that's the same reason a car or a chip or a toaster has a magnetic field. It's moving electrons and therefore electric currents. According to Faraday's law of induction, wherever an electric current is, there's also a magnetic field. Thanks for the reminder. So that means with Ricardo's quantum magnetic field sensor, he can measure the fields created by electrons buzzing around in my body, in my nervous system? That's the plan. Huh. For example, you can imagine the electric current just of a single neuron. Muscles also have a magnetic signature that you can measure. So we are speaking here about much less than a microampere of electric current that we can detect. I want to know from Ricardo all about how this quantum sensor works. But before that, maybe we should look more into the use case. I mean, we already have devices that can measure and visualize brain and muscle activity. Most of our listeners have probably had an EKG, an EEG, which is kind of the same. But instead on the chest, electrodes are placed on the head. 
Electroencephalography. One more time. I can say it in my head. I can read that word. It's no problem. <laughs> Electroencephalography. That rolls right off the tongue. That's why I prefer the acronym EEG. This is used frequently to do things like find out where seizures are starting because seizures are really caused by excessive electrical activity in the brain. It can provide a glimpse of things like what our brain activity is like while we're sleeping and really a variety of other uses. This is Mark Dingman. He teaches neuroscience both at Penn State University in the U.S. and on YouTube. His channel, Neuroscientifically Challenged, is actually pretty popular. He also writes books about the brain, and so he's pretty familiar with the technology that scientists and doctors use to measure and visualize neuron activity. EEG, do you want to try that again, Jeff? Nope, <laughs> so, you got it. Everybody knows. EEG is probably the most common one. What we would ideally want from a neuroimaging technology is to precisely be able to locate where in the brain there's activity when we're performing an, you know, a task or something like that. And EEG is really recording generally where things are occurring, but it's not very precise. And also it's recording the stuff that's happening closer to the surface of the brain. It's not able to tell us as much about what's happening below the surface. Also, and I... I have to say this. It looks ridiculous with this shower cap type thing and all the cables coming out of it. Well, <laughs> that makes it easy to use. So that is a big advantage of EEG. But yeah, it's kind of limited in what it can actually tell us. But there are alternatives. For instance, um, we mentioned it before, MRI. Which is magnetic resonance <laughs> imaging and also much easier to say. Feel better? <laughs> but the technology is more complicated. So it involves exposing the brain to a series of magnetic fields. Those magnetic fields can affect hydrogen atoms in a way that causes them to emit a signal. The MRI machine can essentially pick up that signal and use it to determine the properties of the tissue the signal came from. And it, it uses that information to put together this high-resolution image of the brain. Okay. So high resolution, that sounds fantastic. Yes, but it's an image. It's just a momentary snapshot compared to EEG, where you really record signals over a certain period of time. However, there's also fMRI, or Jeff? I know this one. <laughs> <laughs> Flexible magnetic resonance imaging, right? N nope. Tell our listeners what it is, please. Functional. The F stands for functional MRI. It basically produces a video recording of someone's brain activity. So you can have somebody sit inside an fMRI scanner and do something like, you know, look at a picture of somebody they love and see what parts of the brain are active while that happens. And that might be able to tell you something about the parts of the brain that are involved in the emotion of love. So this news kind of broke my heart, but you don't feel love in your heart. It's actually all in your brain. Well, with that in mind, then it didn't break your heart at all. It broke your brain. <laughs> you know what I mean. Of course. Of course, fMRI can make a lot more things visible than just love. But this technology has its own limitation. You know, fMRI machines are extremely expensive, very large. So you find them in medical facilities and some universities, but they're not widespread. 
Even if you have access to an fMRI machine, it's not as straightforward to use as an EEG. It produces a lot of data, and analyzing that data correctly can be challenging, even for scientists. Can definitely understand that. Uh, recording neuron activity is one thing, mm -hmm. but then making sense of what you've recorded is definitely the hard part. Collecting the data is easy by comparison. But, you know, let's imagine a future where some of those problems are solved. Let's imagine there would be a novel kind of sensor that could make detailed and accurate recordings of brain activity. And then let's imagine that we could make perfect sense of these recordings. Maybe an AI that can interpret them? What could be done with that technology? I could see all sorts of uses for that. We could use that to do things like provide feedback to the wearer about changes in emotional state. If you think about somebody who is suffering from uh, a disorder like an addictive disorder, where they might experience cravings, you can have a wearable technology like EEG that can provide an early indication that stress levels are rising. This is a time where you should start incorporating some techniques you have for fighting off cravings, things like that. He also thinks that things like dementia could be more easily diagnosed with better and more accessible technology. And of course, there are a, a lot of other conditions that are not well understood by science. He writes about some of them in his book that came out just this month, called Bizarre. Take, for example, there's a condition called clinical lycanthropy, where people believe they have the ability to change into an animal. Uh, and so the word lycanthropy comes from werewolves, but people might believe they can change into a wolf. Other people might believe they can change into a dog, a snake, cow, gerbil. There's all kinds of different case studies where people believe they can change into different animals. This is something that very rarely happens. And it's never been studied using the types of technologies that we're talking about. Could be interesting to see what happens in the brain of someone like that when they think it happens, when they supposedly change into an animal, don't you think? That would actually be absolutely fascinating to witness because you could more or less, and I'm, I'm projecting here because I obviously am not a neuroscientist, but if you, if you could actually see that the person saying, oh yeah, I'm turning into a, a gerbil now, I guess gerbils don't have uh, enormous frontal cortex like like we do. Uh, so it'd be interesting to see if they actually do have activity in the lower areas of the brain. That would be fascinating. Sorry, that's a tangent. But seriously, it's amazing stuff to think about. So our understanding of the brain has come a long way over the past two or three decades with technologies like EEG and fMRI. But as you can imagine, there's still a lot more to explore and new tools might help. It'll be interesting to see where we are 20 years from now, 30 years from now. And Ricardo is convinced that quantum sensing can help. If you think of neuron detection, you can see how it detects um, to different types of drugs. And you can also just check how good your neurons are working. Same thing for muscles, but you can also use it for consumer applications because you can just use it to have a signal that you use to control something. Like we can also think of a, a game controller. Plus, he says there's a ton of use cases outside of biomedical applications. Quantum magnetic field sensors could provide an alternative method for navigation systems, for instance. They navigate by using a map of the Earth's magnetic field. So 
As you're driving, the car measures the natural magnetic field and notices how it changes. Not only when you make a turn, like a compass, it also notices when the field gets slightly stronger here, or maybe a little weaker there. And it can compare that to a map of the magnetic field to navigate. Which principally could make autonomous cars even more autonomous. Exactly. It's a little bit like those migratory birds that we're hearing now. Thanks, by the way, Sylvain, for your great support. Finding their way to their winter or summer habitats. They are using exactly those magnetic field sensors in their heads. That's right. I forgot that that's how that works. I bet that would be interesting for autonomous driving. It sounds like this would provide a method where you don't have to rely on satellites or access to the cloud. And what about indoor navigation? Would that work as well? Actually, yes. And you can navigate robots or machines. You can have storage robots. So, I know quantum physics can be unintuitive and quite hard to understand. And also difficult to explain. But do you think we can get, like, a very basic understanding of how all of this works? I'm sure Ricardo can explain it well. No, absolutely. For Ricardo, quantum physics is nothing special. He says, look, all of us have been using it every day. For example, wherever you have a tunnel effect, for example, in a semiconductor, we are making use of quantum effects and we are using them for our benefits. Every computer chip, every smartphone uses quantum effects. I actually never thought about it that way. But sure, no transistors without quantum effects. If we wouldn't make use of quantum effects, I assume our computers would still work with vacuum tubes. Vacuum tubes, indeed. You remember how heavy <laughs> things used to be with those things in there? But another very cool example that I like very much is lasers. <laughs> What makes laser light special is how it's generated by electrons jumping from one energy level to another. That's one of the basic principles of quantum physics right there. You have discrete energy levels. An electron, for instance, can be on one level or the other, but definitely not in between. And when it falls from a higher level to a lower one, or decays, it emits light, a photon. Exactly. This class of quantum technology is called Gen O, or older generation technology. Gen N or new generation quantum technology, is what is currently being worked on. What the difference is that we are now precisely initializing a system and making use of a quantum system and not just having it happen and using the effect passively. They can steer the quantum system, they can tune it. It sounds like what they are doing is much more controlled and targeted. Yes, they are using quantum effects directly. That doesn't mean that the Gen O technology is obsolete. Quite the opposite, in fact. We are using old generation to enable new generation quantum sensors. No, quantum technology, yeah. Lasers play an important role in the quantum magnetic field sensor. Lasers and optics play a big role because we need to initialize our system. That's the first step. A laser shoots light onto a diamond. Can I ask why a diamond? Yeah, let's back up a little bit. 
First, we need to understand what we actually want to measure. I thought we were measuring a magnetic field. Precisely. And that magnetic field has to interact with the sensor somehow. It has to change something in the sensor so that it can, well, sense it. Something on a quantum level. How do we measure magnetic fields? Actually, in our case, this is based on spin interaction. If you don't know what spin is, don't worry. All you need to know for now is that electrons can have spin and that the spin can be changed by a magnetic field. Okay, I got you there. Now, this means that the sensor needs to work with something where it can examine the spin of an electron. And there are some quite interesting systems where you can easily access a spin. For example, alkali metals because they have a free electron. But there is one particular really interesting system and that's a defect in diamond. The old trick from the semiconductor world. Introducing defects into crystals. Where you can replace two carbon atoms by one nitrogen atom. And so you create a nitrogen vacancy because you have the nitrogen taking the place of two carbon atoms and then you get a free electron. And this is quite nice because the free electron has a quite simple energy scheme. It is accessible in the optical region, so you can easily initialize it with a laser or even with a LED light. And that's what they do. But of course, not just for one electron. There are multiple free electrons in this diamond. Ricardo calls them a population. And the whole population, they all get extra energy boosts from a laser, pumping them up to a higher energy level. We use a green light to initialize our system. So we shine on it with a green photon. This is absorbed, so the system is moved to a higher energy. But after some lifetime, it will decay. Right, so in simple terms, the electrons fall back down to a lower energy level. And what happens with the difference in energy? Where does it go? The same thing that happens in a laser. It emits light, a photon. Wow, and that felt very much like school, <laughs> Shuko. Thank you very much. <laughs> Yay, do I get a gold star? As soon as I get back to Germany. Uh, and this is, why, this is why I didn't become a teacher. <laughs> but anyway, uh, you are correct. Did we expect anything else? No. This decay, for example, can be radiative. So you, you just get a photon back, of course, of less energy. In our case, it would be a red photon. And then we can detect that it decayed. Now, this is happening over and over again. Green light goes in, red light comes out. So you have basically a red glowing diamond. Beautiful. Except that they don't want the diamond to shine red. Wait, why? Why not? Well, this is where the electron spin comes to play. It depends on the spin whether or not this red shining decay happens. And there's a certain state where the diamond stays completely dark. Dark, actually. We're searching for the dark state. When they initialize the system with an amount of energy that does not produce any fluorescence, that is, any red photons, then they can deduce the strength of the magnetic field from it. Because the magnetic field has an influence on the electron spin, and the spin changes the decay. The spin is a small magnetic moment, and this allows you, by its interaction, to measure magnetic fields. Whew, okay, so let's see if I can summarize this. First, we start with a magnetic field. We have a quantum system with electrons in a diamond, and the electrons get energy boosts from a green laser. 
the electrons decay and emit a red light. But the quantum system gets tuned to a point where the magnetic field interacts with the electrons so that they no longer emit light. And it's at this point that Ricardo can calculate the strength of the magnetic field from how the system has been tuned. Perfect summary, Shuko. Thank you. Now, in principle, this is all well known and well understood by scientists. They have experimented with these effects in university labs for many years. So has Ricardo. Also at Bosch, we have more than a decade of experience with quantum technology. And now it's time to get this technology out of the lab and into the market. Our focus is to bring this into application, uh, an interesting consumer application, where the world can actually see that this is not anymore just some results that you can do in the physics lab at university, that you can really use it for many applications, and that this is kind of the next stage of technology. Ricardo was part of a team of about 20 people that form Bosch Quantum Sensing. They started out about a year ago with a demonstrator that packed the sensor into a box about the size of a tissue box. It's about a liter in volume. It had a lot of periphery, so drivers, electronics, and whatever around. And so in the end, it was like several shoe boxes, if you count what is part of it. And now, about a year later, those periphery show boxes are all integrated into one tissue box. And they're working on a new version that fits everything, the whole system, into something about the size of a pack of playing cards. Wow, that's amazing! Yeah, it's a Bosch thing, right? We have a lot of expertise that we can use for making things much smaller, and that's going quite quick, so it's nice to see this process, yeah. One reason they can pack it all into such a small size is that this all works at room temperature. A lot of quantum systems either need heat or they need to be cooled to very, very low temperatures. And that, of course, makes them bulky and expensive. Like large surrounding magnetic fields, because we always have a large magnetic field around us. Not so large, but just Earth magnetic field. And for our technology, we don't need any shielding or something, because we can just measure with a high background field. Okay, Jeff, Mr. Salesman, give me the whole sales pitch. It's small, it's robust. What else? It also will cut your grass. <laughs> it's also very fast. There's almost no delay, which is important for many applications. Like Ricardo mentioned controlling prosthesis earlier, you, of course, want it to move immediately. Otherwise, it can be quite distracting. Um, you can imagine yourself, if you hear yourself talking with a small delay, then you stop speaking because it's kind of unintuitive. And by getting rid of the delay and um, enabling consumer applications, I think that's what we want to do. Oh, so not just medical applications, but everyday applications for everyone. Will these sensors become as cheap and ubiquitous as MEM sensors are today? Well, maybe not as cheap. But Ricardo certainly expects wide adoption. I personally believe that there will be one day where you will see quantum sensors like in plenty of applications and just wherever you look. And that applies to any kind of quantum sensor, not just magnetic field sensors. But just one more fact about this sensor that Ricardo and his team are working on, 
our sample is really small. So our sensor head, the actual active area is really small. So we have a high spatial resolution. We also get a lot of information with this high spatial resolution because we have the magnetic field along all of the axes and all of this information in a very small spot where you can precisely locate it. And that, of course, is very useful for those biomedical applications we talked about. If you could build something that is as easy to use as an EEG, but with a high spatial resolution and very high accuracy, that'd be fantastic. I'm sure we'll get there. Quantum technology, quantum sensing will get us there. Ricardo says a quantum EEG could work with only a few small sensors on a patient's head, probably attached to a cap like in a traditional EEG. For gaming, I'm sure quantum sensors could be integrated into a VR headset. You could control the game with your mind. I mean, <laughs> it's actually amazing and really cool. Plus, all the other applications it's going to enable that we can't even think of yet. That's the really fascinating thing to think about. So again, a proud Bosch moment. And thank you, Ricardo, for trying to explain to us how the unintuitive physics behind the technology work. If you'd like to hear more from Ricardo and dive deeper into quantum technology, watch this space. Do you want to hear more from me, Jeff? I have one more example of the strength of magnetic fields for you. Let's hear it. Fun fact. 16 Tesla. Just 16. That's the magnetic field that you need to make a frog levitate. Okay. And the researchers who found that out won an alternative Nobel Prize, an IG Nobel Prize for this in the 2000s. Okay. Uh, and no frogs <laughs> were hurt during the recording of this podcast. On that note, uh, we'll see you all in two weeks for more award-worthy engineering. See you then. Au revoir. From know-how to wow. The Bosch Global Podcast. Hi, it's me, Jeff's voice avatar. I'll bring you more insights from Ricardo Tripoletti in the From Know-How to Wow deep dive episode on March 1st. You'll hear what microwaves have to do with quantum sensing. And you'll learn more about the sensing itself, which relies on something called the Zeeman effect. Because believe it or not, Quantum technology is actually more complicated than Jeff and Shuko just made it seem.